What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We just, he's sitting right here in front of us, <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck we're him. just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client. We'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. bed. He's doing it right now, so we <laughs> we may as well tell people if they're in Australia and you need dog gear, don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E i n z w e c k dot com. There you go. Nice. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right. On to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine Suticals. Yep. The best canine suticals. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. It's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes. In Canada. In Canada. Yes. Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class. Yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara DeGroote. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love Barbara. She just loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. Yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We Thank appreciate you. Thank you, Barbara. You. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did you pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally – he it's does it. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. <laughs> Dog Club South Dog Club, Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork. Yeah, it looks good. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We've got a new one. Who have we got? Tailored Canines. We have too. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, check it out. Tailored so they canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. So thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. has got shit <laughs> Dan Croft, public classes, yep. cool facility. Barber de Groot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the hot dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Tro- dog clubs. Troppy <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> dog clubs. <laughs> Australia. Yeah. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. About time. I know, we're back. We missed a week. We did. But we're back. We are back. And we're going to get straight into it. We are. People get fired up about that. The getting straight into it. That we're getting straight into it. We don't prattle on. Because- <laughs> don't worry. There'll be heaps of waffle. But, but that's what I said to him. I said, worry not, the waffle is going to continue. Yeah. We are going to fill it in. The reason why we decided to do this, I'll explain it is for new people that are coming into the show, they don't know you and I, they don't have a relationship with you and I. You explained this to me. I accepted it. I thought this is a good idea. Now they can jump in the show and they can just say, all right, they're talking about a topic and then we can go for our life. As soon as we've announced it, we can go into full waffle mode. So worry not, my friends, it is happening. (laughs) But we just had a minor waffle. We just did. What are we talking about, Glenn? Going to talk about prey locking. What's that? There's a couple of dogs that I've been helping Steph who works for us here. She's had a foot injury Mm -hmm. and she can only work dogs up to a certain and kilogram rate at this right. point in time. So she's done a ligament damage to her foot. Everybody's busy at the moment. So I said, yep, sure, I'll come out and help you train dogs. So okay. it's been good. I've been out there doing board and trains, private lessons, whatever. Cool. It's nice because I'm back on the tools. Back on the tools. So it's been fun. I've been enjoying it. There's been a range of dogs that I've been working through. So I'm getting the heavier dogs to work with. I'm still working some of the smaller dogs, but mainly the 25 to whatever range dogs that are coming in. So some of these dogs that are coming in, there's such a variance of their behaviours. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I have noticed is when I'm taking these dogs out to the daycare yards or when I'm just walking around, these dogs will start to display what I call a predatory lock mm-hmm. where they'll look at something and they'll just fixate on it. The thing that you and I know about, because we've been in it for a while, we've experienced this with different breeds of dogs and we've experienced the behaviour for is incrementally we got too close. So what we do is just simply, for us, the explanation to this, the end of the story is that when a dog does this and you realise that you've gone too far, what you do is incrementally start ratcheting back until Mm -hmm. the dog sort of wakes up out of its stupor. Because once a dog has started to lock into that predatory mindset where it can't see anything or hear anything else that's going on around it, 
it's pointless doing anything else with the dog. So let's give a better definition of prey locking. Yeah. Like you would say that it is when the dog observes something that it sees as prey yes. or something that it at the minimum wants to interact with. Absolutely. Right. And I suppose that we sometimes in, certainly in biting dogs, we talk about prey locking is the dog that just kind of fixates on the thing that it's going to bite. Yeah. But you probably see prey locking or something that is a facsimile of prey locking in sort of nervous reactive dogs as well. Absolutely. Like it's, it's that hard stare. And so it's not prey in that moment. But you it's could probably say that it could be defense locking. Yeah. So mm. it's the same kind of thing yep. where the rest of the world just becomes invisible. Mm. The dog gets a total like tunnel vision on the thing that it has decided that is of interest to it, whether it's repelling interest, like as in it wants to drive that thing away or it wants to run it down and bite it and it wants like to close the distance. Either one probably doesn't matter in the observation of it. In the treatment of it, it probably does. Mm. But in the observation, it's just a dog that completely fixates goes rigid body, the rest of the world becomes totally invisible and it is focused on that one thing. Is that an accurate description? That's very accurate. And the miraculous thing about it is you and I had a separate conversation before about talking about a complete physiological transformation when you're feeling certain feelings. Mm -hmm. When you watch a dog that gets into that predatory mindset, the physical difference of the dog is astonishing to the dog that was before your eyes five seconds ago. Mm. So when the dog comes in a range of whatever eliciting stimuli it is that's in the field or wherever that you happen to be, the physical transformation of the dog is astonishing, like I said before. Like watching the dog change from a dog that is low-key, jovial, enthusiastic, working with you, responding to you, doing all the normal things that you would expect a dog to do to a dog that is completely belligerent of what you need it to do. Like it's completely locked out. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm using the word locking because some people might hear that and they go, oh, you're using a terrible term to explain what the dog is doing. But the dog is literally locking out. You're locked out of getting through to that dog. Mm. There's really not much you can do other than walk away, which is the best thing to do, or be just a horrendous person, which I don't advise. That's the one thing I'm advising not to do. What I'm suggesting for people to do as part of the fix or the suggestion around this is identify it early. Because there was one stage where I was Before you go on to treatment, can we just talk about what you said just then about yes. locking out? Yes. Interesting about, you know, adrenaline and that sort of thing. And if it's a repelling sort of attraction, like the dog is scared, mm. or even if the dog sees it as prey and thinks of itself as the predator and is highly adrenalized in it. One of the things I think very few people really understand about when you come into that fight or flight kind of reaction, everything else shuts down. Absolutely. And it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. like, that's why people shit themselves and piss themselves and all that kind of stuff. It's because like the subconscious mind that is in control of the sphincters that stop that happening, they go offline and digestion stops, like all the unnecessary body functions that are not important right then yeah. turn off, including in many cases hearing as well. Have you experienced it? Yeah, I have. Well, I, I tell have a story. Have you done the battle crap before? No, no, I've never done that. The only reason I say that and the only reason I know of that is because of On Combat, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman's book. Yeah. I read that and he talked about that, about how young men in service and young women too yeah. who felt totally defiled by shitting their pants when they've been in a high-stakes situation yeah. and then feeling like I'm less of a – 
cool person for doing this. That was devastating for me to experience. Yeah. And yet you explained it perfectly well, as you said before. It's a normal function of the body to say, oh, yeah. let's just, you know, whatever you're None holding onto, <laughs> it's not important, just get rid of it because we're in a high stakes yeah. situation now where it could be life or death. So yeah. let's worry about charging up and getting the muscles ready to run or yeah. pursue or whatever we need to do. What I have done, and I do usually talk about this when I talk like hierarchy of signals and stuff like that in the seminars I teach, but what I have personally experienced is a total auditory exclusion. So I was once in a, uh, I was ambushed. It was a very significant gunfight that I was in for a long time through both my grenades. And I used to carry two rockets. I used to carry two sixty-six rockets, like disposable rocket tubes. And in that fight, I fired one of them and then like, you know, no effect on hearing, probably an hour and a half later, like much less adrenalized. In fact, probably no adrenaline at that point in sort of a calm point. Mm. We're getting harassing fire from a, like someone, you know, acting as a sniper. I wouldn't call him a sniper, but acting as, and uh, he was behind a wall and whatever. Anyway, so I, the, the rocket, the type of rocket, it'll penetrate a wall and it basically fires like liquid copper onto the inside of the room. Oh, cool. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, so anyway, I fired it, the second yep. one. And man, I honestly thought I'd been shot in the head. It was devastatingly loud. Like, and I'd only ever fired them at the range where you're calm with hearing protection on and in a giant gunfight where you're super adrenalized. I'd never fired one calm without hearing protection before. And fucking hell, different experience altogether. And I didn't understand at the time because I, you know, I wasn't into this kind of stuff. I didn't get it. And I was like talking to the guys but as I'm like, what? I was like, I don't get it. I'd like just an hour and a half ago fired one of these things with no effect. Mm. And it wasn't until much later when I got into dogs, actually. Like I learned a lot about myself and my experiences to that point and all these sorts of things from studying your behavior, but through the lens of dog training and then applying it to myself was like, Oh, holy fuck. That's why that happened that day is that it's auditory exclusion. Your ear like under adrenaline, your ear canal swells and literally blocks out the noises that could damage it. Mm. And so the same happens with dogs. You see that like they just, in some cases when a dog will fixate and lock, whether it's in prey or whether it's in defense, it doesn't really matter. The difference is in the mind of the dog. What happens in the body is very similar, mm. is that there's a lot of things that happen that really are to the exclusion of all else. Because if you're if it's prey, you have to run down that prey and win because that's your food, that's your dinner. Yep. And so that becomes very important to a wild animal, right? Or to an animal that needs that food, whether you're wild or not. And if it's defense, then that's survival. And so it doesn't matter if you shit yourself but survive. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if it, there's there's no point dying with no poo in your pants, <laughs> right? <laughs> like if you may as well shit your pants and live, then fucking go the other way. So mm-hmm. like your body just sort of shuts out everything else except what it's deeming important in that moment. Your vision changes, all those sorts of things. And we certainly observe that in a dog when they, when they lock. I think that it's important to understand that this can happen in both directions. You can yep. get a prey lock where the dog is like, I want that so bad. I can't see anything else. And you get like a defensive lock where the dog is like, I'm so concerned about that. I can tune out everything else. There's a term that we use in motorcycling called red mist. It's probably used in other applications around the world for different things as well. But some of the guys I ride with and have ridden with before have talked about people who get red mist. Like they go on rides and they seem obsessed with the objective of Mm. like doing the corners hard, doing the speed hard and doing everything I've experienced it many times myself. You get very confident. You're constantly searching for that adrenaline kick, like doing the corners hard, Mm -hmm. leaning the bike over, doing it at a spicy speed. All of those things are really fun. 
until you get a wobble in the bike. Like yeah. if you hit a rock or a twig or something like that and the bike shudders, it suddenly snaps you out of it. Like you wake up from one drive and you switch from a predatory drive into a defensive drive. Mm-hmm. And suddenly where you weren't aware of your surroundings, as you said, your vision sort of goes from very wide to very narrow. Like you're obsessed about the objective, mm-hmm. like going around the corners and seeing the ride out and then you get to the end and you think, oh, that was it. That was the high I was chasing. People do it in different things with different applications. But when you get one fucking shutter on that bike, it wakes you up immediately. Mm. Like you shift from one state to another state. And I experienced it not long ago. I came around a beautiful corner. I was up in Putty Road. There was this huge sweeper where it's a 35-kilometer sweep and you go out wide and you come in narrow. You do it at such a speed. You could almost pat the ground with your hand. You're that low on the bike if you're doing it right. But everything about it is just the adrenaline is crazy. Mm. It's just fucking insane. But I hit a little rock and it shuddered my bike. Like my bike went wobble. And suddenly I went from one state of thinking to almost like lifting my bike straight up, which you should never do. And my mind went into like, holy shit, fuck, what are you doing? Mm. And I couldn't get my rhythm. I couldn't get my lines accurate. I couldn't think straight after that because I went from a fixated state into like a red mist predatory or prey lock sort of state into Total defense. And I thought, fuck, I couldn't keep the speed. I couldn't keep the pace. I backed off from the ride. It totally rattled me. And I just couldn't get my mojo back on that time. As the ride sustained and we went into some different corners, I got it back then. But right at that time, I shifted from state to state. Mm. So interestingly enough, when I've been out with some of the dogs I've been working, and the reason they're in is exactly that reason. Their owners can't seem to get through to them when they phase into that mindset. It's always the way. People who are doing board and train schools all over the world are complaining about the same sort of things. Why did you come to me so late? Mm. We all echo that sentiment across the industry. Everybody's been saying it. I've heard people on multiple different dog podcasts that I've been listening to while I've been driving from, you know, meeting to meeting. People are saying it all the time. I wish people came to me earlier. I wish they didn't leave it so late. I wish they invested in neutrality of a lot of these different environments. We do it in PSA, we do it in all dog sports. We have a neutrality requirement where we put the dog in an intense thresholds, but say to the dog, let's pre-mac you through this. You can have it and you will have it, but you need to give me this first Mm -hmm. and then I will release it to you. It'll be your reward for your impeccable behaviour. Or even leading up to it, even your learning behaviour as you understand it, we'll play that ratcheting system into the behaviour and, of course, you're going to have it. But for now, you can't have it until you just give me just a touch of Mm -hmm. what I need and then it's yours. And then after a period of time, as we get into the proofing area of the dog, we say, we're going to put all the hurts on you. Mm -hmm. Like there's going to be decoys, there's going to be fucking guns going off, there's going to be bicycles driving past you, there's going to be shit fucking falling from every corner of the sky and you've got to ignore it all until I tell you otherwise. And then all the riches of heaven are yours. And that's what we portray to our dog. But people who aren't involved in dog sports, which is 99.99% of the population, they have no idea about this. Mm. They have no time to do all this sort of stuff. Or some of them are just too lazy to do it. They are either uneducated or they don't know what they don't know. Mm. And then they bring it to people like us and they say, why is it so? Why is this happening? It's for all the reasons we mentioned before. We don't need to tell each other how to suck eggs when we're a greater dog training community. But it is the frustration nonetheless that we're dealing with and it's the frustration that our clients are experiencing as well is when I'm walking my dog into a location and suddenly the stimuli presents itself and that could be anything, doesn't matter what it is, it's the stimuli that sets the dog off. 
So I had three dogs that literally did that at different variations at different times over different forms of stimuli, all dogs locked into a prey mindset. Mm. It wasn't defensive. They weren't scared of it. They were just attracted by it and they wanted it and they wanted exposure. Some were dogs, some were lizards. Now that it's becoming warmer weather in Sydney and parts of Australia, we've got giant skinks that are around here Mm. everywhere. And the dogs, some of the dogs just love them. They can't get enough of wanting to chase them. So I had one dog that literally, he got his own form of red mist. He prey locked on this little lizard. He couldn't get his mind over it. And I had to drag him almost halfway down the oval to actually get his head reset. Mm. I've utilised this statement before. It's the Basement Jack song, Where's Your Head At? Mm -hmm. It's the term that I often ask the dog in my own way is, where is your head at, mate? Like what are you thinking about and where and how far do I have to go to get you back in the game again? Gone are the days where I would use excessive force on dogs and try and battle them through it and use positive punishes and huge displays of negative reinforcement to try and swing the dog back. These days what I'm trying to do is reset the dog to where I've got reason from the dog rather than try and wake the dog up where the dog is thinking, holy shit, I'm in a fight. Mm. This giant bearded bear is just wailing on me. What the fuck happened? Mm. Because in the past where I have done that and I've been too heavy-handed on the dog, you see them look at you. They do wake up. They come out of the predatory stupor that they're in and they turn around and look at you and they're going, what the fuck is going on here? What is this? Who is this guy? What are you doing to me? Like, I don't want to be with you anymore. Why are we doing this? It's disappointing. I've been disappointed about thinking back on that in the past because I I saw the face, you know, like you see the imagery of the dog and you realize, ah, oh, I've done a huge mischief here. This wasn't a productive session. That type of mentality and that type of thought process wasn't productive because all I did was woke the dog up from something that's very instinctive and also has been allowed to continue and very possibly accidentally or sometimes purposely reinforced in the dog Yeah, where, you know, like you're talking about maybe two years worth of behavior that's been allowed to go unchecked Yeah, and all of a sudden you're the bad guy that's wailing down on the dog. It just, it doesn't fly. Mm. Like it doesn't sit with me well anymore to have to do that type of training. Mm -hmm. Getting back on the tools and being a smarter trainer, which we all should be aspiring to be, we should be a better trainer tomorrow than we are today. And that's the sentiment that I've heard other smart people say, and I reflect on that. I think about it. So I have taken the dogs off. I've thought, well, let's just walk up here. I'm just going to walk until I can see you come back around again. And then we start working on it. And then incrementally, hopefully without overexposing the dog to it, but incrementally, we can try and get the dog to a point where you can see the behavior starting to flare and then you can give the dog some form of punishment, some form of saying to the dog, no, don't do that, you know, like that's not going to fly, while the dog is still in a responsive state where it can still have a relationship where the dog can go, all right, I can see the error of wanting to go after that. But when you are in those ridiculous prey lock stages and just having those three dogs on the day, one after another doing it, I kept thinking to myself, No wonder a lot of owners get really frustrated about this. No wonder they feel like they want to give up in these sort of situations because you literally are dragging away 40-plus kilos of a dog, you know, and you might be dragging the dog away two or 300 metres before the dog will come back around and start to be reasonable. And when you're on the road, having other people look at you and heckle you and carry on because you're tripping over and falling over and – You've got no real dog experience. You're a complete novice in this field. It's a terrible and humiliating feeling for people to have. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I get so concerned about, like, as we've talked about, like, the potential banning of bite sports and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. 
terrible is because the path to fixing that kind of stuff is the bread and butter of people who would compete in those sports and perform the obedient. For example, for us in PSA, or not necessarily that everybody does this, but one of the, the ways that most people are developing dogs is they separate their obedience and their bite work for quite a long time. Yep. And they just let the dog water ski them in. And the dog finds the bite work extremely repetitive and it loves it. It's the best thing in the world to the dog. Super empowering for the dog. Even when you start getting the the defense into it, the dog loves it. It's super like the, it's everything the dog wants. And it's not until that we have the bite work sort of put together quite well that we're separately teaching obedience and then we bring the two together. And the way that I do neutrality, it's why I've talked so many people through this, is that I have a tactile signal for my dog that is just like, hey, you can water ski me onto this, right? Like your flat collar is like, I'm not going to try and communicate with you with this thing beyond just go ahead and drag into it, right? But then separately, I'm going to definitely going to be playing games away from that with the dog where I'm bringing the dog more of an inward focus to me. So I want that outward focus where the dog is, go ahead drag me to that turn the pressure of the collar you turn that off by actually getting where you need to go like mm. drag me all the way in and so while we do that in the bite sports you know we probably do that for 10 months or something like yeah. that to a dog that's exactly what most people are letting their dogs do as well when their dog sees the lizard right they don't have the obedience for the dog and the dog just drags them to it and god forbid they do that on a prong collar right like that's even worse if the dog drags through the prong oh, collar to get to the thing yeah you get the relief of the pressure as soon as they're there and, they, and then they get the extra thing it's like it's just going to toughen and empower the dog so if they imagine that they do it on the flat hopefully they've done it on the flat then with the prong, I'm playing these games of like ding with the prong into the toy. And then I'm playing the game of like, I'll get away from you. I'll get that six feet leash away from you and I'll be able to get a ding with the prong. And when you say this kind of stuff and you try and explain it, like most people's perception of the prong is that like you crank it on the dog. But this is a game of can I even manage to get the tension on that? It should be bringing the dog up in attitude because it's playing this game of can I do it? But can I even manage to move my arm quick enough? Can I escape you quick enough that I'm able to even get six feet from you to get any tension on the prong? And you're going to get the toy anyway when I, if and when I do. And that brings that inwards focus. Now the dog is like, okay, like there's a lot of value here. This is a really fun game. Mm. And it's not only a game that I love because it's positive reinforcement. I get the tug, I get to play all of that, but there's a little bit of spice to it because now I get to avoid the prong and the pop, the little minor discomfort that comes with that, the uncomfortable nature of the pop. That's now like gives this space in between where the dog feels really powerful and they create tension into that space, right? Mm. So then I can now, when I'm ready to bring the two things together, I have a mechanism that tells the dog like oh, on your flat and I put two leashes on the dog and I go, Hey, drag, go ahead. And then I can give that tactile cue and go ding, turn around, come back to me. And really quickly I can start to like put the balance back into that space. But what we know when we're developing this sort of thing is that we're doing that obedience work at the same time. Like it's concurrent, just not in the same session and mm. not in the same presence of the thing. And we're building all of this work where the dog goes, cool. I know there's a lot of value in being with you. It's a really fun game. And it's not real prey. There's usually more value in a decoy than there is in the handler, like because the dog get, really gets to fight the decoy and they're into that. In the same way that the dog that's out there chasing lizards is going to find more value in the lizard than it is in the tug game that you can play. Like as hard as we try, we're typically not able to replicate real prey. Sometimes you can get pretty close. And with some dogs, they don't really care. But other mm. dogs, once they've chased a cat, they're not interested in your flirt pole anymore. Like they'll still well, play the, the not there. Yeah. The, the whole imagery of everything yeah. that they're doing. It, I mean, what we're trying to do is create a facsimile of it. Yeah. 
This is where the Greyhound people really struggle with this transition. Yeah, for sure. I know the ethical debate. I'm not saying that I support all the tormenting animals and stuff like that. But when they were just using pelts of dead animals, I didn't see a harm in that sort of thing. I'm not sitting on the fence over that. Some people still find that completely unpalatable. But for a dog that understands what a pelt is and wanted to chase a pelt and it was the closest thing to it and there was no torture and no discomfort, no horrible fucking shit done, I'm all for it. Yeah, and we're talking about a different thing. We're talking about a different thing. like so, but what you're talking about, you know, like the the example that you used before, it's like building a bridge from two ends and meeting in the middle. Exactly, that's yeah. exactly it. And yeah. so that's what usually doesn't happen when we talk about whether it's prey locking or like a defensive aggressive kind of thing, whatever it is, is that that's always there because that's inherent, you know, mm. like that's kind of part of who the dog is. If the dog has a bunch of prey, wants to eat lizards, that's who he is. Mother Nature decided he was like that, and you sure as fuck. You can strengthen that by dragging in, like trying to stop the dog a little bit and then losing your nerve and giving up. Like yep. that's probably the best way possible to Which strengthen Which has happened. It. This Which is, is why they become does. so that's, powerful That's what it. most pet owners are doing. When the dog's dragging them down the street and wants to get to the park and they're like, try, they, you know, the day that they look up how to stop a dog pulling on a leash and they see someone's YouTube video that says, you know, just don't make forward progress. And they're on the clock because they've got their 20 minutes in the morning that they got to actually get to the park and then they got to have the dog's exercise and then they got to get home. The idea that that 20 minutes is going to be spent before they get to the end of their street, mm. most people quickly abandon the idea Absolutely. of I'm not doing this. Yep. But then in doing that, they've strengthened the shit out Absolutely. of it because the dog's like, oh, we're stopping, are we? No worries. I'll get pulling extra hard. Their mm. shoulder gets sore. They let them pull anyway. So most people are by accident wonderful drive builders. Like, yeah, Of course they are. <laughs> this is why – when people have created little monsters in their dogs, yeah. especially for working dogs, and people go around there, my early career was based on that. Yeah. You know, like people had transformed the dog into exactly the monster I needed yeah, it to be. Totally. I remember one day it was like four dogs, one after another, that had just been raised in that fashion where the dogs were allowed to be everything they needed to be to become the perfect assassin. Yeah. And I kind of thought, fuck, this is amazing. Yeah. They didn't realise, they were horrified that they'd done all this sort of stuff. Like you could see the guilt and the shame and everything. And they said to me, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, I know he's a terrible dog. I said, he's a great dog. Yeah, he's wonderful. I said, are you sure you want to get rid of him? And they go, yeah, yeah, I just can't handle him. Not like this and so forth. I said, it's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Yeah. I can salvage this dog. I can do something amazing with him. Because I'm no longer going to expose him to the, like for a period anyway, Yeah, I'm no longer going to expose him to the thing that causes all the issues that you hate. Exactly. I'm going to bring him into my own environment. I'm going to develop a really tight relationship with that dog. I'm going to start playing a game that he wants to play. And that might involve food to start with, but more than likely that's going to be like a a tug kind of game because I'm going to spin the same dial that he wants to spin in that prey. I'm going to show him that there's consequences to not being as as dialed into me as tightly as possible. But those, while aversive, we do have to call them that, Mm. is going to be super fun for him. It's going to be the, the, the best game that I can create. And then when I've got all of that, I'm going to go right to the edge of where he causes the problems for what you want and I'm going to call him back and I'm going to ding him and he's going to turn around and he's going to play that game and we're going to get a little bit closer and then I'm going to create a situation where I am going to let him chase that thing. Whatever it is that like I can safely let him pursue, I'm going to get a little bit closer playing the game. If he pops off the toy to go after your thing, I'm going to make some more distance. I'm going to pop him back into it. We're going to play a big game and then I'm going to out him and I'm going to say, go for it, man, and I'm going to pull on that flat collar and I'm going to let him punt it down. Mm. And to us, that's like, no shit. That's That's exactly. That's dog training 101. Like if your mind's blown about that, 
it's fair to be blown by that, but that's the basics of developing a dog that you want to have big feelings about stuff, right? right? Like mm. the whole reason I want you is you have big feelings and you're capable of that. Mm. So I want you to develop that. But separately over here, I'm going to be putting in all the work to make sure that I can stop you doing that. Yep. And then I'm going to bring the two together and I'm going to do them both at the same time. I'm going to show you that you can have that, but you have to earn it. You have to go through the, this is the gate that you have to go through to get it. And we do enough of that. Then the dog becomes more inwardly focused. And then the dog starts looking for permission to chase down and run down things that it finds that it would otherwise just prey lock onto and be incommunicatable with or Incommunicatable? Is that a word? Yeah. Uncommunicatable. Non-communicado. Non-communicado. <laughs> Excommunicado. <laughs> and that's why I feel like those things are best fits in a board and train, right? Because mm. most people, your average person isn't going to have the skill to do that. And that's a, you know, it's a tricky thing to explain. This is like a big part of my job is when I do a, the online coaching stuff, a lot of people come to me for that process. That's, mm. that's the process that they come to. And they're like, hey, I'm at this point where I just can't get my dog to even engage with the tug with me because it, it in the presence of the decoy, everything else is invisible. And to me, I've sharpened the spear on that kind of dog, but then it's the same process when the dog has big feelings about running down lizards or aggressively running down other dogs or whatever Same, it is. same, but different. It's the, it's the exact same process. Like yep. I've got that same blueprint. I've got that same framework work and I get mm. to practice this all the time mm. and I'm, we're doing it in a, in a situation where it's if it's someone in a bite suit that the dog is drawn to and I fumble the leash or, I, you know, I fuck up in one way or another, no big deal. The dog has a, a learning outcome that's not ideal for us, but nobody's hurt. Everything's yep. okay. There's no problem. But you do this in the real world with your aggressive dog in, in the learning phase. Or with your overzealous predatory-driven dog. Yeah, runs yeah. through traffic or whatever it is. Or gets that, the cat or gets the other dog or yeah. gets the child. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's the tricky part of those sorts of things is really – it's actually – I just finished filming a video on this for the course is, is that idea of that towards and away response, mm. but then the blended fusion of those and creating this like tight space in between that's something like a safe emergency for the dog where it's like, holy shit, this is high stakes and things could go bad. But if it does, it's not the end of the world, but it's bad enough that now there's a consequence. And so I'm like really tightly wound up into this space and that is going to happen regardless of whether you take control of it or not. Like that's how the inputs that we have work. If you've got your dog on leash and it drags you to something, you've just done exactly that, right? We need to then take control of that and actually do it on purpose so that those inputs that as we give them to the dog, you can get only get so far with doing that kind of stuff with food, right? You can put a big dent in it depending on how locked in the dog is and that kind of stuff. But you're just typically not going to spin the same dial that the dog wants spun in that time. Mm, there's a lot of consideration that needs to go into that development process. And it doesn't just derive around the concept of food. There is a lot of hands-on mechanics yeah. and there's got to be some talks between you and the dog where the dog has got to come to terms with understanding how it all plays out. Yeah, I remember part of the philosophy that I was raised in was once the mechanics of good biting has been taught, you're spending a lifetime of obedience around developing the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So the first part is developing the bite, what the bite should look like and, and where it should sit and feel with the dog. The rest of the time is all about the obedience attributed to that because the, now the dog understands I know how to bite. Mm -hmm. I know how deep I should bite. I know what I should bite and I know when, how, and, and what the target should look like. All of that has been derived in my adolescence training platform. 
The rest of it now is all about here is the pre-macking system around yeah. it. You know, here's like how I earn it. Here's how I earn it. You don't get it unless you do this. The stakes are low at the start and then we raise them towards the end and they almost seem impossible as you start to progress. Every test of dog sport does the same sort of thing. You're one, two, and three in all your trials. Again, I'm not telling you how to suck eggs, but for the people out there, the stakes get higher and you have to yeah. realise, what am I training my dog for? I think the mistake that a lot of people do when they go into trials and the preparation work they do is they train for the trial. They train for that trial. Yeah. Whereas I think the stake should be trained slightly above it, if not to the next level if you yeah, possibly yeah, can. Sure. Like you should be always progressing to the above level before you put your dog in. Like, for example, if you're doing a level one, halfway or full way trained for a level two, by the time you put it into level one, yeah. the dog's well, progression limits should be quite good. I usually encourage people that before you do your one, you should be at a point where you're like, if everything went perfectly for me, I could get I could a two. step into a two. Yeah. Yep. And so then you're like, okay, sweet, you're ready for a one. Yep. But I think on that topic, like that's why the treatment of that kind of problem in a dog, that locking that you started is talking about, mm. that to you and I is like, oh, this is easy. This is like, yeah, well, that, this yes. is a tricky thing to, this is going to take some it's time. It's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. It's annoying that someone let a dog get to this point. Yeah. But this is actually easy to fix. Yeah. And this is why I am so obsessed with the idea of encouraging dog trainers. Because, Like how many dog trainers do you meet? I mean, you beat way more than me that are like, you're really into it and have the timing and the skill and they're going to be a very good dog trainer. Mm. But they're scared of getting involved in any aggression cases, like rightly, because it's high stakes, you know, and it's, and it's a tricky thing to learn how to do. And certainly in Australia, there aren't really many schools you can go to to learn, like, hey, I want to learn to deal with aggressive dogs. Like there's plenty of courses you can do, but there's nobody who's like, okay, this is the school for learning how to do that. you got to mentor under people. you got to, like, there's a lot of steps to getting into that. There certainly is. There's a lot of application in that. Yeah. And there's also what you need to rely on is the experience and the timing of somebody who's been through it before. Exactly. For example, and exactly what you were speaking about before, there are times where I have taken the dog's attention off something at once and the dog has turned around and goes, now I can see you in mm. my target hairs. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's a dog that was reasonable with you before, but this is a dog that has the spice in it. And I've been in those sort of predicaments before where the dog has switched off locking onto a target and for whatever reason, it looked at it and thought, I need to get to that. And then when you take the dog away from it, there's a redirection complexity that the dog has and, and looks at you and thinks, you're it, mate. You're my lightning rod. Yeah. I need to hit something and I can't walk away from this feeling like I have no fucking stake in the game here. And yeah. you're it. Yeah. And that's happened to me before. And it's happened to other trainers around there. Now, people don't know how to identify with that. And they don't know how to feel about that when they experience it. Like some dogs have gone sailing past me. Well, I've had to swing the dog. No, I'm not saying that I helicoptered the dog, but I've certainly yeah, diverted the, the dog. I've had to get by. out of the way of the dog because yeah. the dog has certainly had intent at that point in time because those strong feelings that you were talking about before, they don't just go away. No, exactly. That's lightning in a fucking bottle. But this is what I mean is like this is why I encourage so many people, so many trainers to get into a sport with their dog. It doesn't have to be a protection sport, yep. but something that is like an extreme version of drive expression. Yep. So like maybe that is a protection sport, but maybe that's GRC, maybe that's agility. Whatever. Whatever it is because yep. what we wanted, like what you should be practicing doing is bringing that dog into a really high state of arousal and controlling it while it's there. Yep. To my not, I mean, there probably are sports, but they're not the ones that we're in, like looking at where you just cook the dog off. You know what I mean? Mm. Like they're all like, okay, bring him into his high state of arousal, but show me you can control him. Yep. And so usually then you're like, well, 
I can't in the highest state of arousal. So maybe I'll just learn how to go a notch back from this and yep. I'll learn how to coil the dog up a little bit more and I'll keep, help keep that dog under control. And I'll really learn to observe what my dog looks like when he's, when I'm going to lose him. Like, I think that's one of the things that when you go, like you go out to club there or you go to any trial anywhere, most people that can look at their dogs and go, Oh, like you are too far gone. I have to wait a minute. You know, you see people talking to decoys, like bring up the arousal, bring down, the arousal because mm. we learn to look at the dog and go how how much influence do i actually have over you in this moment right like like can you even hear me are you even aware that i'm there what are the chances of me being able to give you the thing that i want or the tact or that i control right like not the external stimulus what level of control and communication am i able to influence you in this situation and we know all these things because we have to be able to do it but then that just makes when you got to do it with some other dog, like you're like, oh, well, I've done this plenty of times. Like mm. I've, I've been down this road heaps of times where it wasn't very dangerous because we're here, we're wearing the protective equipment. We've set it all up because we've been mentored into this stuff. We've got the back ties. We're wearing the right gear. We're doing all the things. So then when it's time to do it with a dog that really has those same big feelings, but no one trained him to do it, it's just that's like for whatever reason that's come around then for people that are involved in the sports, it's easy because then you're like, oh, well, I've been here before. I know you. I don't know you specifically, but I know a hundred versions of you. Mm. And that's not to say that that's the only way you can get good at that stuff, but it's, it's certainly a surrogate for it. Like, because as I say, there aren't many schools that will teach you, okay, like when someone calls you because of their aggressive cattle dog that is guarding something in the backyard, there's very few places you can go to learn how to deal with that kind of dog. But what there are plenty of places to go is, hey, this is how you teach an object guard. And mm. this is this is how and, and why a dog would, res- would re- guard a resource like this. And this is how we build it. This is how we turn it on and off. This is how we cultivate it. This is how we maintain it safely so that you can still take the object from the dog. Like there's all those things that we do teach and it's formal. Like most people, most training directors have like a very rigid structure to how you teach those things. And when you understand that, then you understand the same process to how that cattle dog got in that position in his own yard and Mm. you can go hey man i see you i know we didn't do this to you on purpose but it's happened nonetheless but there's control mechanisms around this that i now have to bring in for you so that you're safe to be around and you can learn how to do that via participating in a high drive expression sport Mm. i think that this really was you know one of the main reasons why jay invented grc it was the whole point of it in that a lot of people who would have problematic nervous dogs just the process of training for GRC. They have will, jobs. Yeah, will fix mm. their, their problematic nervous issue like their, you know, whether it's environmental, whether it's problem with other dogs, whether it's with people, whatever it is, just the process of training for GRC will get rid of that issue. Mm. And it isn't necessarily that you even need to address the issue head on. It's that you're going to put control in high arousal. That's really all it is. I think mm. that's that's really like most dog sports come down to that and that alone, that this is control in high arousal. Good for you. You can control your dog. You can control your dog in your house. Fucking wonderful. I can tell my dog to get on and off the couch too. Yeah, but the Good stakes aren't as high there. Exactly. You know, like the arousal levels are way lower. And I mean, the, the dog's at peace in its head. There. Exactly. So that's why we want to yeah. see, like, let's bring that dog into a really high arousal in a way that he loves. Let's not yep. let's not cause a problem for the dog. Like, let's bring that dog into the highest state of arousal we can safely, ethically, and in a way the dog loves. And now let's try and like exercise some control over that dog. Yeah. And the process of doing that on your sport dog is what is going to get you ready for and turn you into a way better trainer for doing that on somebody else's pet dog when they've built a monster by accident. Mm. That's my rant. It's a good rant. It invokes some memories after hearing you speaking about that of some trainers I heard talking about their concerns around 
capping drives, mm. they were concerned over the whole capping of the drive that it would shave something off the end of the dog. Mm. After listening to the conversation, I intervened and I said, how do you know? How do you know you're not adding on to it? Mm. They said, I don't, but I'm just concerned that if I start getting into drive capping, like I'm starting to try and control what the dog is doing and how it feels in any given situation, like it can never reach its full potential. Mm. And I said, that's a good thought. And I said, I, I guess I don't really have an accurate answer to answer that on. Like I don't know what would be fully achieved because I haven't got the observable timeline to watch the dog. But how do you know that it doesn't add something onto the dog? Like mm. having that mechanism of control, as we said before, if you're pre-macking a dog into that type of behavior and the dog thinks, well, I can have it. I've just got to give you focus or I've got to do like a beautiful down or something like that, you know, and the dog expresses great obedience and then understands through the clarity that you've interlaid to the dog. Now I can have it and I can express everything into that. Mm. How do you know that you didn't pack something in behind that? Yeah. So a little bit more gunpowder and the dog thought, now I'm going to explode into this. Like I've been biding my time. I've been waiting to express into this and now you're going to allow it to me. Now you've given me the release and the okay to do it. Now I'm going to put everything into that. So I thought that was an interesting conversation and I like to be part of those conversations. I like to be a part of that quizzical mindset where people are thinking about those type of things because it's a conversation that really does need to take place with some of these people who are invested in high stakes working trials and so forth, Mm. but not for mum and dads. Mm. Like for them, they would hope that you'd shave something off the dog if you are learning to cap drives. They certainly want you to bring things back because we can't let a dog express itself into the lizard or into the cat or into the other dog or anything like that. We can find something else, a surrogate, like we said, The dog that I was working with, I found that he liked the ball and rope. Like he was quite expressive with that. And when I got him to understand, mate, you're never going to have the lizard. Like it's just not going to work. But what I did find was that he he could express his frustration into the ball when we were at a focal length where he could understand this is where I'm allowed to dispel my fucking energy. Like Mm. I need to get rid of it somehow. The ball is a great surrogate for that. So I taught the dog, this is it, mate. This is all that's going to exist in your world right now. You can put everything into it you want, but you can never touch the lizard. You just can't go near it. Within a week, I saw a massive turnaround in the dog. The attitude shifted, the presence of the dog shift, everything shifted. We had a lizard jump out on us. I expected him to fully go for the lizard. I'm under no belief or mindset that that dog is permanently changed. But he jumped back when he looked at the lizard and he looked up at me and I thought, mm. oh, hallelujah. Yeah. You like, know, hey, like, man, you got to get that ball out. I saw the lizard. Exactly. Yeah. I actually didn't have it on me at the time. It was the worst time I was taking him to the kennel and I thought, whoa, what a fucker. But I actually got him out for another session. I made sure he had a – I don't know if it carried over. I absolutely, honestly don't know if it carried over. But I put him away, I went and got the ball, I got him straight back out and we did a quick session where I allowed him to have some good expression into the ball. But just the fact that that dog fucking didn't go for the lizard when the whole week I'd been struggling with it because these fucking lizards have a tenacity to pop out on you all over the place, it was my biggest fear. Like it was the thing that I was thinking about all the time. Like I have to avoid corners, I have to avoid... You know, I have to try and make noise when I'm going into there because these bloody lizards are literally sitting on every bloody corner and mm. the dog is expressing after these lizards. And when they do, I lose him. I lose him in his entirety. But having him focus on the ball gave him the lightning rod that he needed at the time. Again, I'm not trying to teach experienced dog trainers how to suck eggs when they're trying to transfer it from one location to another. But it was a nice image to see from the dog nonetheless. Mm. 
It's good when you see a training work, hey? It's very rewarding. Like you're holding that breath in the entire time because you know that the days are counting down until the owner reappears again. Sometimes we might have three weeks with a dog, but I mean, you're talking about two years of ingrained behavior that this dog has sustained the entire time. Three weeks ain't a lot of time. Like that really, it's just an introductory. Ethically, there's been frustrations for people around the world about the board and train system. Like a lot of people say, I don't really like it. I don't find value in it because of if the owner is not going to follow it up, then it's all for naught. Mm. I don't entirely agree with that. I hear the argument and I understand people's frustration around it. I believe something is better than nothing. What I do believe in is that the dog needs to work with a quality person who can give them as much information in the little time that they have with them and hope and pray that the owner is going to take it on board and follow suit with it and say, even if I do 40% of what you did, it's still far better. Like the dog is still making tracks above where it was. Mm. What's your thoughts? I've got a question for you, actually. Sure. sure. I'm really interested in perception. So Mm. I don't know whether I'm meant to talk about this, but fuck it. I'm going to speak at the next ICP conference, right? They've asked me to speak at that. Yep. And the dates work out that I can get there. Unfortunately, we couldn't get there this year. It was right in the middle of school holidays. And I'm going to talk on perception because I'm kind of obsessed with it at the moment. And perception doing, is huge. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm doing a lot of research. I've got 12 months to sort of figure this out. Yep. But I'm really doing a lot of research on the way that dogs think and feel about things, right? And just the idea, like we say that, think and feel. Yep. The very concept of think and feel, we don't even understand that in people, right? Mm. So like the objective feeling of what chocolate tastes like. You know what I mean? Like we don't understand that. We don't really understand like what it is to feel something. How do you know what I think and feel? I don't. And it's impossible for me. I don't even know that you You, exist. The the only way that you know what I think and feel is by asking me. (laughs) No, but that's what you're saying. And here's the thing about people, 90% of the words that come out of your mouth are fucking bullshit, Mm. right? Like you're just making things up in your head. Your brain is just filling in the gaps all the time. The more research I do into this, because I'm I'm totally obsessed with it at the moment, certainly in people, and I'm like now making all my assumptions of dogs and trying to figure out what's real about them, because there's plenty of research on this in people and, and, you know, not nowhere near the quantity of it in dogs, right? Yeah. And it's very difficult to measure because at least you and I can communicate in a way that you just can't communicate with the dog, right? But the idea of think and feel, like I can only go by what you say. It's unfair to say 9%. But a lot of what you say is not going to be true because what a lot of people, you know, you're judging yourself and you're measuring the things that come out of your mouth against how you think they'll be perceived Mm. by someone you can't even be sure exists, right? Like that's the reality of the world. And so then applying that to a dog is fucking wild. But I digress. Do you think a dog can long for a situation that it formerly had? So let me expand on that. Mm. Say a dog is rehomed. Say its owner dies, right? For example, the dog's rehomed to someone else. Do you think the dog ever measures its life in its new home versus its life in its old home? And do you think ever that a dog longs for its former life? Because for the most part, when we think of dogs being rehomed, they kind of get upcycled, right? Because we think of dogs going from rescue into a home or a pet home. That's how most people think of a rehoming of a dog because that's Mm. typically that's how it goes. And we usually will put that in the category of the dog's situation went from bad to good. But what if a dog's situation goes from amazing to, to good? Like it goes from like it's got its ultimate owner that 
it's totally bonded with and, and the owner is fantastic with the dog and they fulfill each other totally. And then for whatever reason, that owner is no longer in the dog's life. It goes to someone else. Do you think the dog ever is like, fuck, I miss that person or compares its experiences with the new person to the old person? Yes, but short term, not long term. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a window that closes rapidly based on my experience of watching dogs coming in and out of boarding kennels. Mm -hmm. And I mean, fuck, I've seen tens of thousands of dogs over our entire period at all the different places I've been and worked at. I've got to watch the relationship of dogs coming in and out of boarding kennels and facilities, daycare centres and so forth and being involved in training and just watching how they transition. Some transition so well, like they come in and they basically like, oh, fuck you. Some owners are devastated that the dogs will run into the kennels and not look back at them. Like Mm -hmm. they literally are in the office weeping about it to the girls on reception Mm -hmm. where some dogs are terrified. They're like little kids who go to summer camp and they're crying and holding their parents' legs and they're equally as if not more devastated about that, the owners of the dogs I'm talking about. Whereas there are even those dogs, that ones that seem to suffer so much, with enough time it fades, they're so malleable. The way that they exist in any environment, it reminds me of a saying that says no matter where you go, there you are. Mm. And I think that a dog is most adaptable to that, Mm. whereas humans do have – this stream of cognition where we kind of think about it for long periods of time and we do like lots of comparables, like my life was like this, my childhood was like this, I longed for this, that was my love, the person that treated me best in life was like this. I don't know if dogs are so much that. I'm not saying they can't be. Mm. I've seen dogs transition from new owners to old owners. Then the new owner has been scared that if it sees the old owner again, it's going to prefer them. And I've seen those transitions before with the dogs going, no, 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 I'm with you now. Mm. Like, hi, old friend, you know, like it's nice to see you and I'm happy to be around you, but this is my person now. I'm with them and all of my heart and soul is connected to this person. It used to be you and you're a good person and I like my life with you, but I like my life with them now. Well, that's exactly what happened with my wife's dog, Ernie. Yeah. We were only meant to have him for 12 months. Right. And he transitioned entirely into you. Yeah, and when, when they came to pick him up, he wouldn't leave. Yeah. He was like, no, I'm staying here. It was, I, it was very not, awkward. It, it, yeah. A lot of people like to think that's a special thing that that dog happens with them, but it's not. It happens frequently with a lot of dogs because of how malleable they are yeah. in those environments. And I think when a dog understands not only is this my life now, but this life is good. Mm. It's a workable situation. I like it, I'm getting fed, I've got a nice place to sleep, I've got companionship and I'm being fulfilled. And the dog is totally at peace with that. Like they move on and transition very quickly. Where humans, we're very complex about transitioning. I think we find struggle in, you know, like where we used to work and the people that we used to know. Just speaking on my own experiences, there's things that I have regrets about. Like I try not to go through life with too many regrets, but there's certain things or experiences that I've had or relationships that have ended. I was reflecting on a relationship that ended with me and a colleague some time back, like a long time in my past. And I have regrets about it. Like I kind of look at it and go, I wish I was still in that person's life. Like I actually Mm. enjoyed some of the laughs and some of the experiences that I had with them. But the problem is there's so much time that's developed between that person and I to add the complexity into this conversation that we don't really know who we are anymore. Like I don't know that person. Like we've changed so much. There's been so much time 
that even though we knew versions of each other, we might not like the new versions of each other. Mm. It changed for whatever reason it changed. A lady that used to really be in our lives when I was probably in my about 10 years old, myself and her family, you know, it was family friends. Myself and her children were really close. Like we did everything on the weekends. We hung out all the time. And I haven't seen them for years. Like it's been decades since I've seen those people. Not out of bad blood. We're still friends on Facebook and everything like that. But the lady made a comment to me. She goes, I know you, Glenn. I couldn't let that sit with me. I went back to her and I said, I know you knew who I was when I was a child, but so many things have happened and so many experiences have There's a lot taken of water under the bridge. Yeah. And so many things have taken place in my life. So many things have shaped me into becoming who I am. Like you don't know who I am and what I became from who I am now is entirely different. You know, like I don't even like a lot of the things that I liked when I was, I don't think about anywhere near the things that I thought about that. And that's how complex we are as human Mm. beings where I don't see that in dogs. I just see them as, oh, well, I'm giving that up now and I'm transitioning into this. So that was great. This is better. Mm. The other side of that question that you asked, all I'm doing here is rabbiting on about things that I'm thinking about, not facts. Yeah, we're hypothesizing. Exactly, exactly. I don't know that these facts can be gotten. Unless we have some way of being able to dial into the actual conscious brain of, of a living entity. Yeah, and there's the thing, we understand so little about consciousness in people, yeah. let alone in fucking dogs. There have been times where I've seen dogs look miserable with the new person that they're with. Mm. And they've even said that to me. They've said, I kind of feel bad like I've taken the dog from a life that it should have had but it doesn't have. And I've thought to myself, would that dog be like that with a different set of people or is it just you? Or is it the absence of the person that it was? Exactly. Yeah. So and, that's- and I have asked that question to myself before. Like I said, you know, like I've seen so many transitions and so many experiences with dogs like rescue or dogs that they've had for life or dogs that have gone from like a generational dog that have gone from old parents into the family or a dog that started off with the mother as a present from the kids and then went back to the kids or whatever it was. There's, there's so many strange and varying complexities in all of these intertwining relationships. The weird thing is, is looking at the face of the dog and thinking, I don't know how you feel about this given situation right now. Mm. You know, like I've seen dogs in kennels that look so fucking remorseful and I've seen others that are so at peace. Mm. It's incredible. They're looking at you with this loving, happy gaze when you come past. It's just like, oh, here's somebody to come and say hello to me. This this is lovely. But some dogs are just that. That's who they are, full stop. They're the sort of dogs that when the owners drop them off, they go, okay, thanks, bye. And they're just dragging you off into the kennels. Yeah, It's like Remy. Remy's a funny dog. Like he barks and carries on like a pork chop if I go in there. And it's like noise, noise, noise until I go over there and touch his nose through the wire or go in and give him a pat. And he's like, oh, I'm at peace now. Thanks. Yeah, it's needed to be acknowledged. And then he's like, I don't need you anymore. Like I'm done with you now. That's Remy's thing. He needs the acknowledgement. He needs the acknowledgement. He just needs to be one physical boop on the nose. (laughs) And and that's what usually what I do. And I do it to Randy needs the same. Randy and Remy are very much kindred spirits. Randy doesn't really want much connection from you. He just wants a boop on the nose. Yeah. And every fucking day, if I go past and I talk to Mando without talking to Randy, like, that's it. He loses his fucking wig. Yeah. I could go out now and do it and show it to you and you'd think, he'd laugh and go, oh, wow. But if I boop him on the nose, all is forgiven. I just have to pay homage to the elder dog first and he is cool with it. Yeah. If I go to the junior first 
and not him and ignore him or walk past him because he was further up the yard or something like that, it never bodes well. Yeah. They're, they're strange creatures. For sure. Didn't we get far off track from pre-locking? Yeah. <laughs> but before we do wrap up, because that's what I was curious about, right, is yeah. the my only qualm with board and trains, and I don't know that this is valid, mm. is that in the micro – when I'm training with someone, sometimes I take the dog off their hands and I handle the dog. Yep. And if they're new, like I'm an experienced dog handler. I'm not saying that I'm fucking the best in the world, but I'm pretty good at it. And if they're new and they're not, sometimes you see dogs that are like, no, no, I'm doing that rep again with you. Like you do the demo rep with the person. Oh, that contempt is real. Yeah. And yeah. so, but that's short term for yep. sure, where you see the dogs like, no, no, if we're doing this, you are much better at it. And I want to continue doing it with you. I don't want to do it. They with love you. the timing and they love and the it's expression. Communication. Yes. And, and like, this is what we find like as animal industry people, like as a dog trainer, when I go to someone's house, immediately their dog is in love with me because I know how to communicate I, with dogs. I, I can summarize this well for you. This is how I believe it works really well. The dog loves its people, it respects you. Mm, yeah. And that's how I've often explained it to people because they get real, people flatten out when they see that and they experience yeah. that. Like so many times where we've had this situation before and I've said to him, your dog loves you. Mm. He respects me. Yeah. He likes what I deliver to him and what I'm capable of. We were talking about before, the dog loves my capability of timing. Mm. He loves knowing the predictability of what I bring to the table because you're unpredictable and fun. I'm very predictable and what I will bring, the dog is hooked on it. Like mm-hmm. it's it's adrenalized by that type of yeah. outcome with me. Whereas you, like he just knows, oh, I'm allowed to fucking do whatever I want with you. It, like your grandma. Exactly. My whole job, your whole job, well, like as trainers, our whole job is to get in the head of the dog and manipulate their behaviors. Yeah. And, and the easiest way to do that is to have them want to do the things that you want them to do. Go on to the days of I'm going to crank you into doing this. It's like, no, I'm going to get in your head and I'm going to make you want to do this more than anything in the world. I'm going to make it hard for me to even stop you doing the thing that I want you to do. And you're going to think it's your idea. And that's not that hard for us to achieve. We're experts at it. But my concern, and I don't know that this is valid, but it's definitely something that weighs on my mind sometimes is in the micro, I see it short term. Someone, the dog's like, no, no, Pat needs another rep. You can beat it, Jono. Like (laughs) Pat is teaching me this. Yep. But the dog leaves the session happy, right? Mm. But then I've seen where I've had a dog for like a day or two, right? And then the dog, when people come together, and the dog's like, hey, happy to see you. Glad you came and visited me and Pat. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then the dog leaves. And as it's leaving, there's usually some like hesitation as it's leaving. But then on the longer term thing, and I've done this in the past as well, where I've had a dog for a long period of time and the people turn up, the dog's like, hey, super happy to see you. And then it's like, but you're leaving with me. And the dog's like, I'd rather not. Mm. And I've been on both ends of that. And, of course, the dog's leaving with them. It's their fucking dog. Except in the instance of, like, our old dog Ernie, they left. That was a really uncomfortable day. The chick was like, she'd been overseas for 12 months and was this whole thing of her coming to get her dog. The dog was like. That would be devastating. Oh, it was devastating. It was very uncomfortable. It was very awkward. It was before I knew anything about dogs. I didn't really, like, (laughs) I was just like, oh, my God. And Ernie never liked me anyway. And he was Jane's dog. Mm. Anyway, that's my only thing I think of in the board and trains. Like I wonder sometimes if you got a dog for a long period where it really settles in and goes, well, I guess this is my life now. And it's a fucking rad life. I'm all about it. And then the other people come to pick them up and they're never going to be as good as you. They're thinking like, you're going to educate them. You're going to do your hand back, your lesson, all of that, but they're never going to be as good as you because you're a professional and they're a person yep. that paid you to do the thing. Right. I wonder sometimes if 
for how long, like certainly in the car ride, the dog's like, oh, this is shit. But by the time the dog gets home, for how long is the dog like, man, wish I was back there before the dog's like, oh, I've settled in here. This is my life. And to what degree can a dog miss something? That's a really important question. And there's no answer. I don't think there is a definitive answer in that. I think the right way to answer that question is it depends. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I remember when I was doing martial arts as a kid, the very first one that I ever did. And my coach back then, he was a guy called Peter and he was a Vietnam veteran, really cool guy. I loved him. Like not a, like a love, love, but I I respected him. Mm -hmm. I really respected him. And I loved impressing upon Peter. I really liked it when I did something that I caught his attention. Like for me, I think I just didn't have the attention I needed back then. And I think having that from a strong male figure who I found a very fair and reasonable person and a good person, you know, like he was probably one of outside of my family, one of the first strong male people that I had in my life. He was a nice guy. He meant business and he made it clear to us, if you put in the effort and everything, you're allowed to come to his house with his family, you know, like his wife and kids were there and we could do extra training outside the dojo. So we could go into his gym, lift weights, punch the bag, everything like that. It was cool. And we'd all sit around in the fire in his backyard and we'd talk about his experiences, like in just in karate and stuff like that. But he'd also talked, he was a bit of a uneducated philosopher. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mum saw that one day and she got, kind of offended by it. Not in a bad way. I'm not saying, and she probably doesn't even remember this. It was such a long, long time ago, but she kind of felt like, geez, you really are a different person with Peter that you are with me. But I love my mum and I loved my mum back then. It was just that this was different for me. Yeah. You know, like spun a different dial. It spun a different dial. And he gave me the fulfillment and allowed me to express the way that I needed to express. And it felt like something that was really missing. He provided that for me. Mm. And I feel that some dogs are probably like that. When you're talking about perception, I feel that when a dog identifies with you, like you actually fill in the missing pieces, all the holes that are riddled within me. And I feel like this sometimes when I feel, if I feel connected to somebody and I feel that they fulfilled something within them, it is an amazing experience. And I'm sure you know this yourself. It's like sometimes when a person meets their soulmate and they feel like they've met the other half of their personality. It was a a lock and key situation that came together well. And I know that I've seen that that expression from a dog before and I know that I've experienced it at different ventures in my life with different people or different circumstances. Like it's just a fulfillment that you have that you think this was something that was missing. It was a it was a part of the puzzle that I've been searching for for a long time and somebody put the piece in place. And now the picture is more accessible. Now I can see what it's trying to do. Perception. I agree with you, Pat. I think perception is so fucking powerful. Maria and I talk about it at work all the time. And every time we have a meeting, Maria will turn around and laugh and goes, what is it, Glenn? And I say perception because perception, your perception is your reality. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's so fucking powerful. It's wild. It's wild. I'm so far down the rabbit hole on this that it's, it can get a little bit It's no longer useful, right? Mm. Like you get to the point where when you understand, like it sort of all starts out with the double slit experiment of like. Oh, that was, that was horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, That really bothered me. I wish I didn't say that. Yeah. And so when you really understand the old sort of when a tree falls in the wood, no one's around to hear it doesn't make a sound. It's been proven. There isn't even a fucking tree. 
the tree's not there without a conscious observer of the tree. When you say that out loud, people are like, oh, you're just talking through shit. Two people got the Nobel Peace Prize last year for fucking, not the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize yeah. for proving that reality is local, right? What like it only doing, exists in your head. Yeah, what people are doing in string theory and some of the complexities into universal vibrations oh, and so forth. Don't get me started. Yeah, I know. It's like I'm just thinking, oh, I just wish I didn't hear that because – that's, yeah, you have to deal with that now information. Now I have to deal with that reality of knowing that that's something that's happening around us. And then, like, it's one thing because I deal with a lot of people, but then dealing with dogs, then you got to apply it to them and be like, oh, fuck, how are you even perceiving this? How are you rendering this experience in your head? Yep. How can I even know how you're taking this in? Like, how can I possibly understand your point of view? Like, when you have a totally different set of senses to me that is taking in because what is essentially only varied degrees of waveforms, <laughs> like that's all that exists. Mm. How are you taking these in, right? Anyway. Here's my movie reference for this oh, podcast. Good, good. That reminded me what we were talking about then because I know people are going to go, fuck, you guys are getting deep into the weeds of some crazy shit here. But it reminded me of the original Matrix movie, which was really a mind blower for me. Yeah. Like that yeah. was- The documentary called The Matrix. Yeah. Yes, the documentary called The Matrix. Like I didn't sleep the first night I saw The Matrix. I went and saw it with a mate and he goes, that's shit. I don't get it. What was troubling for me is I totally got it. Yeah. There was a part in there where one of the Agent Smith, the original Agent Smith, he says to one of the characters, Cypher, you know, they're talking about you give up your mates, we'll plug you back into The Matrix. We'll and he goes, I want to be someone notable, someone rich, someone mm -hmm. important. There was a point in it where he said, I know that this delicious steak is just ones and zeros, but he goes, it just reminds me that ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And I thought, fuck. <laughs> and when you brought that up, there's a lot of times where we don't want to know about this. We just want to carry on yeah. living in an ignorant and blissful state because yeah. it feels so good not to have the pressures of knowing that. Yeah. Troubled minds are minds that analyze yeah. Perception and realities. Well, that's so like this is when me and last year, was it last year? Me and Jazz were out tracking early one morning, right? Yeah. And I said, oh, I'm, I've bought this ice bath and I'm going to go home and give it a go for the first time. I was like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go to the servo, buy some ice. I'm going to try this ice bath. Do you want to come around and have a go, right? So we both had our first ice baths, right? Yeah. And both of us were, you know, it's horrible. Ice bath, terrible. Yeah, it's fucking horrendous. It's disgusting. But then afterwards, we're, we're at home kind of sitting around talking. And we're in the garage where the ice bath was. The kids are playing around and stuff. And both of us kind of looked at each other with this look like, do you feel what I feel? And it was both of our bodies aren't hurting anymore, right? Like 30 minutes later and it's like, ah, oh, fuck, now I can't ignore this. Like I have to do this every fucking day now <laughs> because now <laughs> I know. Like, like I, I was ignorant. An hour ago, I didn't know that that was so good and I could just claim that I, you know, I don't do it. I live in pain. But now I know. And so yep. now the days that I'm in pain, that's a fucking choice. Yeah, you're I've on the realized side of that, it. right? Mm. Like I'm like, oh, I am choosing to be in pain because I know the path out of that. Mm. The path out of that is horrendous pain for two minutes, but then there's none for the rest of the day. And I'm, I know that now. I can't pretend that doesn't exist. And every day I don't do it is a fucking choice. It's not ignorance. <sighs> All right, we gotta wrap it up. I gotta go out and train some dogs. We do. I'm, I'm very late. All right, that's it. Yeah. Another episode. Before we do wrap up, I just want to acknowledge a good conversation I was listening with Tyler Mudo and Panos oh, yeah? on uh, Life with Your Dog. They had a great conversation. I was listening to it today on the way to a meeting. I actually messaged Tyler on the way and I said, hey, I'm really digging this conversation. He said, yeah, wait till you get to the end of it. I think you're going to find it might be a bit controversial for a few folks. 
listen to it anyway. It's a good conversation. And Tyler is a good conversationalist and, you mm-hmm. know, he's a good philosophical type of person as well. One part that I really enjoyed what he talked about was how certain breeds in ANKC were like the German Shepherd for argument's sake was referred to as a great family dog. And he said, and I quote, that dog probably used to with the people that were around back then with the situations of living and the education and everything that was around 30, 40, 50 years ago. He said, that's probably a true statement. He said, but I don't agree with that statement anymore. And he said, in fact, the dog has changed since then as well. Mm -hmm. There's been modifications in what the dog was. And he said, I actually don't find that a lot of German Shepherds are good family dogs. And I tend to agree with him. Mm -hmm. And I'm not shit-mouthing German Shepherds. I love them. I have one. We get a lot in here for training and we have a lot in here for boarding that are great dogs. They're lovely. They're beautiful. Rah, rah, rah. What he was saying was he's getting a lot of shit because he's been supporting people who get some of the oodle breeds. And he said, but they're fantastic family dogs. Welcome to our world, Tyler. Exactly. (laughs) But, and I agree with him. And I said this statement before, like I have seen the relationship of people with some of the oodle breeds and it is a perfect match made in heaven. Yeah, Tyler, a brave conversation. I appreciate it. I think that what you said was incredibly accurate. I totally support it. And I think more people really need to do deep dives into, as we were talking about before with perception, and this is why it rejogged my memory on this topic, perception of what is good for you and what you like is not for a broad array of different people. There's a lot of other people where that is a chaotic fucking environment for them. Telling people that, Roddy's, Shepherds, all these type of dogs are great family dogs. In some cases, they are with the right type of family. But families have changed. Ever since I've been a kid, who we are and the direction we're going with is completely different to the way I was raised in the 70s up to right now. Yeah, Boys that I see, young boys growing up these days, they're entirely different. The way that they've been encouraged to act, behave, and who they're being funneled into becoming was entirely different to who and how I was told to act, behave, and funnel into who I was becoming. Yeah. We toyed around with this concept of perception. We can't say to somebody, you should get a German Shepherd and you shouldn't get an Oodle because I don't agree with it because it's not a purebred dog. Well, neither were a lot of these dogs. You know, I mean, the the Shepherd's a very ancient sort of dog anyway in, in realities of the established world. And Roddy's been around for a long time either, but some of these other breeds that are registered as purebred dogs have been around for a short period of time and they've been accepted as a purebred dog. You know, they were mutts once upon a time as well. Like red and blue cattle dogs are a combination of a lot of different types of yeah, dogs. Yeah. Again, I use the expression quite frequently throughout this episode of telling people to suck eggs. I'm not. I'm not telling you what you have to have and what you shouldn't have. But what I'm saying to you is if you see a happy family with a little spoodly oodly cockadoodly dog, Who gives a fuck? If they're all happy together and that dog is fulfilling the space in their life, Tyler made a good point of it, that dog's not going to get booted out to a welfare agency. It's not going to get euthanized because um, it bit one of the kids. It's probably not. I mean, they're very malleable little dogs. There's in there for sure. Yeah. But the vast majority of them I see, they're sweet little teddy bear dogs. Yeah. Great words, Tyler. Appreciated the episode with you and Panos. Well done. All right. All right. That's it for another episode of Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and then go to another one. You're doing you it in such fast forward. <laughs> you, you must be in Imagine the for the people that listen in fast forward. <laughs> uh, if you want to support the show, yeah. best way to do that is getting a Patreon. 
and you can give us as much or as little as you like. I saw the graphic you did for your Patreon episode last. It looked pretty rad. Yeah. So it looked a bit 80s. Yeah. Mike Harper got a great photo of me. At, it's actually a whole series of photos. Of you throwing balls at a dog yeah, or something at the, like that? Yeah. The PSA trial we had in Queensland. Yeah. I did the tackle motorist scenario. Yeah. And he got this incredible photo. It was a second dog. So he obviously saw the first one go down and then was like, oh, I know where to stand. Yeah. Mike did a great job. Wild dog photography. He's amazing. great. I love he's him. He's a nice guy. He was at the IGP trial yeah. as well. He's well, he's loved- the he's the dog sport photographer in Australia, and yep. he he takes great photos. He knows the sport. He knows where to stand. Really nice guy. Like blah blah blah. But anyway, he got this great series of photos. And I spent an ungodly amount of time learning how to use AI photo editing stuff to yep. remove the background on it and keep all the balls still flooding through yeah, the air. Nice. And I wanted to try and change those into stars and make it. Anyway, it, it was a cool graphic. I, was, I enjoyed it. Looks it looks good. Yeah. Anyway, did that this morning. So there'll be another live stream going up soon. Buy a t-shirt. I just yeah. had a fucking full. I, my, you, I know. You're I just Glenn like, probably would have edited that out, but my brain just did a hard restart. I, I was just looking at you like it was like the Matrix froze. You cocked your eyes up into one yeah, my corner. My brain just, did a hard restart. You basically like, just gave up on I life. I had no idea what to say. <laughs> if you want to get a t shirt, do it. Get in the spring. Go, oh, you cool got your leather cover. Holy I shit. I do. I've got it. You've got it. I've got it. It looks nice. I yeah, like it. It's pretty good. It's very bespoke, sir. It is. Yeah. It's working out. It looks like something I wasn't that sure the about it to man start from with. Snowy River would. Proudly a, a John. Yeah, I wasn't sure about to start with, but now it's really grown on me. No, I like it. it looks I, good. Yeah. And my wife found out how much I paid for it. So, like. Did you get, did you get smacked? No. How much was it? I'll tell you off air. <laughs> tell me on air and I'll bleep it out. Yeah, it's not, and I consider I don't do anything else. It's not like I'm wasting money anywhere, and I carry this thing everywhere. And it's an Australian company; they made it for me from scratch, from my design. I'm happy with it. Yeah, cool, good um, for you. I'm happy that you got something that means something to you. Exactly. Thank yeah. you, sir. All right, buy our shirts, get in Teespring, do that. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the Facebook discussion group. There's yep. ten thousand people in there, all being cool. There's a lot of good they stuff are. going in there recently. Yes, there um, is. It's a great. It's it's really the only place on Facebook that I'm very active. I try to read as much of what's going on in there as I possibly can. But if you want to get in contact with us directly, you shoot us an email. We are info at the Love you. Goodbye. <laughs>